Greetings, everyone, and welcome to a special episode 14.5 of Wrapped in Podcast. This is Ken Walzak, and I am recording from home in San Francisco, California, after two weeks of travels abroad in Europe. And I am here today to discuss two scenes from Twin Peaks The Return, episode 14, the Monica Bellucci dream sequence, and the scene after, that is to say immediately after, Andy visits the White Lodge in Jack Rabbit's Palace. And I'm focusing on those two scenes in particular because I think they have interesting resonances with Arthurian legend, but also with um, comic books, particularly the X-Men in the Marvel Universe, and with the world of beverages, which are all, of course, beats that I cover on the main program, Wrapped in Podcast. So I didn't want to let a week go by before discussing some of those issues. And obviously, there was plenty to discuss in the main program of episode 14. So I'm contributing this supplement as kind of a hybrid of Ken's Beverage Corner and Ken's X-Men Corner, and I hope you will all enjoy it. Digging right in, I'm not the only person to have pegged the location of the cafe in which the Monica Bellucci dream sequence takes place, Uh, but I think I may have been among the first as I got up in the middle of the night in Barcelona to uh, excitedly proclaim to the others who record the podcast, uh, and specifically to uh, JR and Kyle and Jeff, that Uh, I think I had been on the street where the cafe sits. That is to say, the cafe where Gordon Cole has his Monica Bellucci interaction and uh, his interactions with Agent Cooper and Philip Jeffries. That cafe is on uh, Rue du Montparnasse in the Montparnasse area of the 14e, that is the 14th arrondissement in Paris. And I re- realized that I recognized it by means of sort of a Lynchian kind of a dream of my own. I saw the sequence and I was immediately brought to mind of this conversation that I had with a waiter in a garden of a cafe where my French was particularly on point that day and we were having a wide-ranging conversation of involving different current events topics and it only sort of stalled out when I failed to come up with the French phrase for carbon offsets. And I just remember that particular bit of, uh, of 
trivia of uh, um, specialized language tripping me up. And so I had that image in my head and I realized, of course, that that garden cafe was in Montparnasse because the hotel where my wife and I spent that part of our honeymoon was near the Tour Montparnasse, the Montparnasse Tower. And I assume, of course, that the French have put up a commemorative plaque celebrating our honeymoon appropriately, but I, I haven't been back to confirm. In any event, uh, I remembered that there was uh, a, an area of Montparnasse that looked like that street. And sure enough, when I looked up the Hotel Renoir, which sign is visible on the right side of the street as uh, the camera is looking up from the cafe where Gordon Cole sits, there is an Hotel Renoir in Montparnasse and on the Rue de Montparnasse. And in between that hotel and uh, the metro station for Boulevard Edgar Quinet, there is like five different creperies. And you can see signs for different creperies on the same side of the street in the shot that Lynch uses for the dream sequence. I'll post a link on the Facebook page to the actual Google Street View of this area of the Rue du Montparnasse. But the point is the creperie where this conversation takes place, the cafe where the conversation takes place is a creperie, and that creperie is 100% definitely one called Creperie Plougastel, which I think Kyle will appreciate was founded in 1972, the year that Richard Nixon was re-elected. And I found this creperie completely fascinating from the perspective of what we've discussed over the course of this season of Twin Peaks. It's, for example, open from noon till midnight every day, and you can learn this on a website that is festooned with wood grain as though it exists in some portion of Twin Peaks itself, and where the only other color really visible is red, uh, which I will leave to Kyle and, uh, I suppose, Ice-T to uh, interpret. But Plougastel is very, very into its proprietor's native Brittany or Bretagne. The name itself, Plougastel, comes from this compound in very, very far western Britannia. So, like the outstretched tip of the finger of northwest France. And there is this compound there. It's a religious sort of monastic commune, which is known for its extremely high quality strawberries. And the creperie is named after these, um, uh, after that commune. And its logo has berries in it on the sign. You can see those in the shot from the Bellucci dream sequence as well. These berries also appear in the coat of arms for the commune itself. It's actually quite cool. You can see that on the Wikipedia page for the Plougastel commune. But I suspect that the reason why the creperie is named for the strawberry-producing commune is because the French have long nurtured a particular affection for high-quality, organic, locally-produced ingredients. This isn't something that became trendy in France, like eating local, seasonal, organic became here in San Francisco. It's something that has been a way of life for the French for a very long time. If you want to drink very good apple brandy, for example, you get your apple brandy from the Calvados region of Normandy. If you want to eat particularly good cheese, you get your cheese from particular caves, or particularly good blue cheese, for example, you would get it from the beautiful caves of Roquefort, right? 
The notion is that there are certain people who have a local tradition of producing certain products extremely well. And I suspect it's the same thing with these strawberries from Plougastel. And I was just kind of blown away learning about these strawberries and about this commune with the parallels between extremely high quality local production of strawberries for strawberry crepes and uh, extremely high quality production of local organic cherries for cherry pie at Norma's Double R in Twin Peaks. It seems to me that Lynch is very specifically converting his American metaphor for all that is good and wholesome into the French context by choosing this cafe. I should point out, of course, uh, that the website for Plugacel also touts that they're five minutes from a cinema, which probably also appeals to Lynch, although if I'm thinking of the right cinema, it's a particularly mediocre sort of a, a multiplex, but, but never mind. Moving on to my favorite scene from the episode, and I think probably just about everyone's Andy's time in the White Lodge, I'm interested in discussing the immediate aftermath of the White Lodge sequence when Sheriff Truman asks Hawk, what happened to us back there? He doesn't ask what happened to Andy, he asks what happened to us, as though all of them went through some sort of an experience together or rather separately, while Andy was having his conversation with the fireman, the Mysterian, the artist formerly known as question mark, question mark, whatever we're calling him these days. So it's as though this makeshift sort of bookhouse boys or treehouse boys assemblage of justice fighters from the sheriff's department all went through an experience as a team or broke off from each other to have some sort of a mystic experience. And I mention all of that because it reminds me of the concept of the Siege Perilous from the X-Men comics in the Marvel Universe. As we move forward into the last four hours of the series, I'm very keen to see what, if anything, we learn about the experiences Sheriff Truman, Hawk, and Bobby had, in addition to the experiences that Andy had, uh, because the Siege Perilous in the X-Men universe is a very interesting concept that's been used to alter the futures of numerous characters over the years and has properties that I think resonate really nicely with this narrative of the in the show Twin Peaks. The Siege Perilous specifically is a kind of a magical gem. It appears for the first time around Uncanny X-Men 227 after the X-Men have sacrificed themselves to save the world in Dallas. They die, the X-Men are, are wiped off the Earth, but they're resurrected, as commonly occurs in your Marvel and your DC comics by a goddess named Roma. She's essentially an ancient being with ties to the wizard Merlin, you know, that Merlin, the Merlin that you know from Arthurian legend. And so Roma brings the X-Men back to life. She gives them this gem that can turn into a portal. She says, this is the Siege Perilous. And she explains that the X-Men should call on this gem if they get essentially fed up with leading superhero lives. So the X-Men set up shop in the Australian outback, and actually things go south pretty quickly. Um, they, uh, To give you an idea, there's this cybernetic team of reavers that managed to kill a whole bunch of uh, tertiary X-Men, and they uh, 
actually chain Wolverine up or nail Wolverine up rather to a cross. They actually crucify Wolverine in the Australian Outback. So things things go pear-shaped. It's not great in the Australian Outback. And so the team actually decides more or less one by one that they've had it with the superhero life and they start to defect. And as they start to defect, a lot of them go through the Siege Perilous, which means they take a look into the Siege Perilous. They see something about their future or their destiny. The gem opens up into a portal and they enter this portal. And they don't emerge sometimes for weeks or or months, and they emerge in weird parts of the world. Rogue goes through the Siege Perilous, and she emerges, for example, in the Savage Land, which in the Marvel Universe is this um, ancient sort of an untouched paradise uh, with dinosaurs and cavemen and such that exists in Antarctica, but, you know, comics. So, various X-Men go through the Siege Perilous, and they emerge as different forms of themselves, with different memories, slightly different powers sometimes, different ideas of themselves and who they are. And it's a, it's a very convenient narrative device, and it leads down some very cool paths in a lot of... Uh, circumstances. But eventually, a bunch of X-Men go through it. So, Havoc, Dazzler, Psylocke, Colossus, Rogue, as I mentioned, uh, for some reason, Quentin Quire many years later. And it has very, very mixed results. Uh, and the Siege Perilous, before you go into it, shows you things, right? It shows you, for example, your death. It can show you the fates of all of your various teammates. It can show you, like it showed Alison Blair, Dazzler, all of your potential identities and destinies, which I was brought to mind of immediately when I saw the sort of broadcasts that Andy was reviewing in the White Lodge during episode 14 here. In fact, a lot of this, I think, resonates with Andy's experience, especially if you cast Nido in the sort of Roma mold as the bearer of this uh, portal kind of technology and uh, the or or perhaps the librarian in um, in South Dakota, though, of course, she she met a much worse fate than Roma, who's essentially an immortal. Any, in any event, it just seems to me not out of the question that Frost and or Lynch had Chris Claremont's conception of the Siege Perilous in mind when he wrote this sequence, given the references that we've seen, for example, to Jack Kirby and the fact that the Marvel Universe is certainly very much aware of Twin Peaks and has played around with Twin Peaks as a cultural phenomenon quite a bit over the years. The the Twin Peaks universe actually exists in canon, as we say, in the main Marvel universe. So Val Cooper, for example, is the liaison between the United States government and the mutant team X-Factor, and her cousin in the Marvel universe is Special Agent Dale Cooper. And the uh, teenagers in the New Mutants, before that team becomes X-Force, watch Twin Peaks on television religiously, which suggests to me that maybe in the Marvel universe, Twin Peaks is a documentary, since Dale Cooper is a, a real person who solves real cases. It's a little unclear. But given those nods and those uh, that homage being paid by Marvel to Twin Peaks, it wouldn't surprise me if Frost and Lynch were returning the favor here. But I should mention that Claremont himself borrowed the Siege Perilous from Marvel UK, where it appeared in a slightly different form in Captain Britain comics. And the Captain Britain comics had a habit like much of the Marvel Universe, but even more so of gleefully playing around with items in the public domain. So characters and concepts and histories that are free to use because nobody owns the, the copyright, nobody owns the intellectual property, right? And nothing is a better example of this than uh, the Arthurian legend 
legend and the way Arthurian legend informs the whole of Marvel UK and, and Captain Britain comics. So that's how we get Merlin in the same universe as the X-Men. And that's how we get Roma as an adjunct to Merlin. That's how we get Captain Britain as a descendant or an heir to the legacy of King Arthur. Right. But of course, the Arthurian legend is also our old friend from this season of Twin Peaks. We've seen Arthurian legend referred to again and again, right down to the street names and the development where Dougie and Janie E live. And in Arthurian legend, where this concept was borrowed from, the Siege Perilous is a very different kind of a uh, concept. The Siege Perilous is a vacant seat on the round table. So Arthur, King Arthur can, um, <clears throat> excuse me. King Arthur puts together his round table and he leaves a seat vacant for the knight who will ultimately successfully quest for the Holy Grail. But while the seat is empty, it's perilous, it's dangerous, it's fatal to anybody that sits in it. And uh, there's different ways of describing this particular attractive nuisance concept in the legend, but the basic idea was the same over hundreds of years of telling that, you know, uh, Arthur was reserving this seat for somebody who would ultimately uh, bring back the Holy Grail. Holy Grail, and then anybody who attempted to usurp that position would be killed. What interests me most about this particular motif is uh, the description of its origin in Wikipedia, which says, according to many scholars, the motif of the Siege Perilous can be further traced to Welsh, Cornish, and Breton mythology. And in fact, they credit Breton mythology for uh, the bulk of this part of the Arthurian legend. That is extremely interesting to me because, of course, Brittany, Britannia brings us right back to Plougastel, to the outstretched finger of northwestern France, and to the strawberry commune that produces the beautiful fruit that are the Norma at the double R cherry pie equivalent in Lynch's version of France where the Bellucci dream takes place. And this has been Ken's Beverage and X-Men Corner.